1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 2 and including 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall." No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, let me pray for Sam and for the rest of us as he comes up to speak. Father, please, as you always do, speak powerfully through your word as we look at it together. By your spirit, please take these words, take the words that Sam speaks, plant them deep within our hearts and shape and mold us to be more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 22. This uh, is the next part in our motto series that we have been engaged in as a church family as we've been going through 1 Corinthians um, 8 to 10 together. But before we get into our passage this morning, and more for my sake as much as yours as I clear away the fog of twins from over the past uh, few weeks and get my bearings back into this wonderful part of Scripture, especially after our break 
uh, last week for half term. Let me do a, a very swift and high-level recap of where we are in these chapters. For as we've been looking at um, on Sundays and in our small groups, the question that seems to have been asked by the Corinthians to Paul is one that concerns food offered to idols. In short, are we allowed to eat food sacrificed to idols, they ask, but because we think they are. And we think we are, say the Corinthians, because we know that there are no idols. They don't exist. There is only one God who created everything, and so everything belongs to him regardless of whom humans pretend to sacrifice their food to. It's all nonsense. We have this knowledge, says the Corinthian Christians, and we're right, and therefore we are free to eat food sacrificed to idols. And Paul responds to that and says, well, yes, you're right in part. That's what Paul covers in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 8. You're right, says Paul, quoting them back, that an idol has no existence, verse 4, and that there is no God but one. However, be really careful of this knowledge, continues Paul, because this knowledge for its own sake puffs up and does not build up. And that's because this knowledge, knowing that idols aren't really anything and that you do have freedoms and rights as Christians, doesn't exist in a vacuum. Indeed, this knowledge has to be deployed carefully and with love within the world in which you live. Because there are a number of different groups of people who are watching you and your lives and whose opinion as to what you are doing matters more than the knowledge that you possess. And we've seen over the course of this motto series, haven't we, that there are three groups of people uh, who Paul says are watching on the Corinthian Christians and whose opinion that take, takes precedence in their thinking through how this looks like. The first person who is watching on is the weaker brother. That's what chapter 8 concerns. Those who have been saved, who are wanting to follow Jesus, but for whom eating food sacrificed to idols takes them unhelpfully back to a time where that was their lifestyle. And in seeing you, the, the strong, confident Christian, being engaged in this in any way, well, their consciences may be wounded and they may fall back into sin. Chapter 8 asks us, therefore, to make wisdom calls out of love in regards to the things we are free to do in Christ, but that we would willingly give up in a heartbeat if it causes our Christian brother or sister to sin. Secondly, says Paul, consider the second group of people that are watching on, which chapter 9 concerns, those who aren't believers in Jesus, but for whom you need to live radically distinctive lives in front of. Does your eating food sacrificed to idols show Christianity up to be just a pluralistic religion like anything else in Corinth? There's no distinctiveness to it. Christ is, is, is no more God than anyone else. Or conversely, do I actively go somewhere, even in my discomfort and at great cost to myself, even when I'm free not to, to love my Christian brother and to show off Christ? As Paul says in chapter 9, verse 12, we have not made use of any of these rights, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It is the opinion of the non-believer that takes precedent in my deploying this knowledge. Finally, however, there is a third group of people we need to consider when deploying this knowledge in the world, and that is you, says Paul. As much as it is me, says Paul, you need to consider yourself when living freely in Christ, and you need to consider yourself as you stand in front of God who is also watching on. 
For as I live out this knowledge, I do so knowing that ultimately when all is said and done, it is God's opinion that really matters. And this is the focus of chapter 10, the chapter we're looking at today. In in deploying this knowledge and living freely for Christ, am I watching myself as I stand under the eyes of a sovereign, powerful God who will not be messed around with? For it really matters what he thinks about what we are doing and where our heart is as we do it. And this focus is brought into profoundly sharp relief in verse 12 of our passage, which I think is the focal point of this chapter. Therefore, says Paul to the Corinthian church and to us, let anyone think that he stands, take heed, lest he should fall. In other words, Corinthians, when all is said and done, in your living out of these freedoms, in your thinking about eating food sacrificed to idols, in your assumed knowledge that you know who God is and that he's got your back, in your assumption that you stand safe before God because you're Christians, are you actually involved in full-blown idolatry? Are you not just making bad wisdom calls, but in fact fully participating with and fully engaging with idol worship? And that's the principle of this passage today. Participation. As we think about deploying this knowledge, are we, as we interface with the world, are we in danger of fully participating with idols? Are we, in other words, worshipping other things instead of God? And therefore, verse 22 of our passage, are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? And in doing so, are we also assuming that God will never call us to account? Well, says Paul, be warned, because that is a very dangerous game to play. Because, says Paul, God will never let you get away with that. You are free to do many things marked by love, but you are not free to make God jealous. And to highlight how serious this arrogant way of thinking is, Paul begins by laying out his argument from the Old Testament, as Scott read for us earlier. And this is our first point on your service sheets. Paul lays out his stall at telling us how dangerous this way of living is by providing a warning from the past. Verses 1 to 7. Just read those again with me. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud... And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now it's interesting that Paul starts here in his argument, and it's important that he does so because he wants to example for the Corinthian church exactly what their hearts are like. And by providing this example of this tragic period of the history of the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness, so Paul holds up a mirror to the Corinthian church And what they see isn't very good at all. You see, for the Corinthians, as we've been looking at, knowledge is everything in the opening chapters of this letter. 
Paul is challenging their wisdom and their knowledge. And, and so for the Corinthians, they feel that they've got everything sorted. We know, they say, verse 1 of chapter 8, we have knowledge, we're wise. We know who God is, we know all about him. He knows who we are. We've got him sussed. We've got idols sussed. We'll never fail. We also know that we have privileges in Christ. That's what the Corinthians are saying in these chapters. That we are free from idols because there aren't any. We know the God of the universe personally. And so regardless of what I do, I'm safe. I'm deeply privileged. Well, says Paul, be warned with that way of thinking. Because, let's just consider for a moment your forefathers in the wilderness. And look at the privileges and the knowledge of God they had. And what privileges? There are three big ones here that the Israelites enjoyed intimately. They had a cloud, the cloud. That meant that God's presence was visibly and physically with them, literally showing them the way in the skies as they followed the living God. Secondly, they passed through the sea, which which Paul likens to a physical act of baptism. That that meant they were a people who were visibly and physically saved by the hand of the living God as they were saved out of the Egyptians. And they also ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. And the giving of the manna from heaven and in water from the rock of Christ. In other words, these people had the privilege of eating visibly and physically at Christ's table, miraculously from his hand. Now, do you recognize any of these privileges, says Paul? Well, they're yours. You have the presence of God, Corinthians. You were baptized, you eat at the Lord's table. Now, can you see how Paul is picking up the Corinthian Christians and and placing them in the sandals of these Israelites? But rather than this being a good thing, rather than this buttering them up, it is a deeply disturbing thing. Rather than this being something to to be celebrated, it's something to be warned against. Because what is the warning? We read that in verse 5. Nevertheless, despite all these incredible privileges that these Israelites had, With most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Indeed, as Paul continues in verse 8, 23,000 fell in a single day. This is no joke. What on earth happened to this incredibly privileged, knowledgeable people that walked with the living God of heaven himself who assumed that they were safe? Well, very simply... They provoked the Lord to jealousy by becoming idolaters. And what does idolatry really look like? Well, it looks like verse 7. They sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. This really is damning language. This is Paul talking of the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, where Aaron melted the Israelites' gold and silver and erected a calf to call upon in the absence of Moses as he was up the mountain talking to God. Uh, The people were demanding gods like other nations. That's what was happening. And they fell into worshipping the calf, which resulted in truly astonishing sin. They ate and they drank, meaning that they fellowshiped with each other around the idol. And they rose up to play. And forgive me for sensitivities, that is a a devastating euphemism for the engaging in a religiously heightened mass sexual orgy. 
You see what's happening here, says Paul? The approaching of an idol, something that is relatively, in reality, nothing, it's just made of metal, but approaching this man-made idol has led these privileged, knowledgeable men to enter into full-blown fellowship with it and into full-blown participation with it. They were having a sexual affair, if you like, with other gods, literally and figuratively. They were being unfaithful to God himself. Now, jealousy is an interesting thing, isn't it? It's often portrayed as a bad thing, and it often is. Am I jealous of what my neighbor has, of their house, their family, etc.? Do I covet those things? The Bible says that's bad. That's a commandment that we shouldn't covet. The Bible teaches us that we are content with what we have. But jealousy can also be the correct and necessary response to something. If a man or woman is not jealous over their spouse upon stumbling across an affair, then there really is no relationship at all there to begin with. There is no love in that relationship. And faithfulness demands that kind of jealousy and hurt and anger in a loving relationship. And as the people in the wilderness become deeply unfaithful to God, so he is rightly provoked to deep jealousy because he desperately loves his people. It's not okay, says Paul. It's not okay that you bring God to jealousy. You are not free to provoke the Lord God to jealousy. And we see that's not okay. There are tremendous consequences to this unfaithfulness. Many were destroyed. They were not safe. You can imagine what the uh, Corinthians were saying to each other. We are so privileged. And we are so because we eat of Christ's table and we drink of Christ's cup and because we know he died for us. So I live freely how I like. I'm not worried about boundaries on my freedom. I mean Christ. And you can imagine what they would have been claiming for their protection. I was baptized. I was ordained. I was confirmed into the local church. I'm a small group leader, a Bible teacher, an elder. I'm a minister. I'm preaching. And thus I stand. God knows me, and I know him, and everyone else knows me, and I'll be fine. It's fine that I dabble here and I play with this. Oh, the privileges I have, and the history behind me to prove it, and the ceremonies that I stand on. Be warned, says Paul. You who think that you stand, lest you fall, just as your own forefathers did. Look at the Israelites. But Paul doesn't leave it there, for he doesn't just give us a warning from the past, but he uses this warning as an example for our instruction. Verses 6 to 11. For the uh, question we should now be asking is, but how on earth did this happen? How did the Israelites get here? What are the stepping stones to full-blown idolatry? How did the Israelites succumb to this? What do we learn from them? Well, that's where Paul turns to next. But helpfully, Paul isn't just writing this to scare us as as much as it should scare us or, or sober us as Christians. But he also teaches us that the Corinthians, how not to fall into the same trap. Verse 6, this is an example so that you may not do the same. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example for our instruction. Let's learn from it, says Paul. And so Paul instructs us. 
What did the Israelites do wrong that led them to such rampant participation with idols? Well, helpfully, Paul lists what they did wrong, namely three things. They fell into sexual immorality, excuse me, verse 8. They tested the Lord God, verse 9, and they grumbled, verse 10. Now, we've seen what the Israelites' sexual immorality looked like, shocking in and of itself, but, but this was an act that had been carried over from Egypt, one that was practiced in the pagan societies around them, that the, the Baal of Peor demanded sexual favors before him with temple girls. The Israelites were conforming to the pagan world around them as they looked on this metal idol. But what of the other two? How did they, how did they test the Lord God? Well, in Exodus, we're told how. Remember that the free food that the Israelites were given, it literally rained bread. And God sent suicidal quail who were desperate to be caught and eaten. And he gave them water from a rock. And as they're stuffing their faces with heavenly food, they turned around and literally said the following words that are all captured in this period in Exodus. There is no food and water, they say. They actually say that. We loathe this worthless food, they say. We want the meat of Egypt, they say. Astonishing ungratefulness and arrogance. They tested the Lord God with their attitudes. And not only did they test the Lord God, but they also grumbled. And by grumbling, we mean that they grew to detest God himself. Again, exampled in the book of Numbers, charting the same period, Numbers 14, that the people are asked by God to go in to conquer the land which he was going to give them. But instead of taking the land, we read this, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Or our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And shockingly, as Moses falls prostrate on the Lord, interceding for the lives of the Israelites, so the Israelites seek to stone him as he does so. A full 180-degree turn had been enacted in the wilderness. From the God who had given so many privileges and so much knowledge, and with whom they fellowshiped directly, they turned back to the gods of Egypt, who they were now hankering after. So much so that God's leader was sought to be removed. And so the Israelites became, in effect, more like Egyptians and more like the pagans as they prostituted themselves in front of a golden calf made of metal. They provoked the Lord to jealousy, and they were destroyed. And as Paul finishes his lesson, so it should be that the Corinthians' ears are pricked. For all these things, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, and grumbling, are the exact same things that is going on in the Corinthian culture and in the Corinthian church. If you remember when we started the series, and we'll see this especially next week, that the question about food sacrifice to idols isn't a niche theological discussion. Food sacrifice to idols dominated the culture. 
You see, Paul chose this story in the Old Testament, which is closest to the situation in Corinth. For the the whole of Corinthian society was built around the worship of idols made of precious metals, hence the golden calf. And full community life required you to go along to their sacrifices to eat and drink, and in these temples, sometimes in Corinth, to rise up and play. You see, says Paul, the temptations that the Israelites were faced with, so you are faced with in your culture, Corinthians. And if you join in with full participation in that, you're not safe. But more than this, eating food sacrificed to idols and cavorting and engaging with them in the temples was not just dominant in Corinthian culture, it was literally the way in which life worked. It was the way in which business was achieved. It was literally a part of transactionary life. Jobs and promotions were dependent on eating in the temple places and being involved in ceremonies and rites. To go to a simple business meeting may well have involved being at the celebration of the gods of the boss, in his home or in the temple courts. And because of that, the question that the Corinthians ask Paul concerning food sacrificed to idols hides what is for the Corinthians a deep, deep grumbling against God. Can you see? And the grumble looks like the Israelites grumble as they turn to the gods of Egypt and pagans around them. Now work this out. They would have been saying this, the Corinthians. I don't want life to be difficult, they might say, just as the Israelites were saying. I don't want to follow God's way, they might say, just as the Israelites said. I don't want to miss out on promotions and jobs and the joys of daily contemporary life. I want to be like everyone else, as the Israelites were saying. I want to be able to engage with idol worship just for an easier life. And just like the Israelites, I therefore maybe want another leader to follow. A less jealous one. One that will allow me to interact with culture as I see fit. And all the while, they are standing on past history, past ceremony, standing on baptism and communion and gospel privileges and a knowledge of God to make them safe before him and not to fear any kind of consequences. You cannot live like that anymore, says Paul. Not if you claim to follow Jesus. Idolatry, no matter how ingrained it is in culture, cannot mix with Christianity. Now, this is a very difficult sermon to preach. It's a very difficult sermon to listen to. But the Bible does not beat around the bush when it comes to the seriousness of what it means to be in a relationship with the living God. The Bible does not shy away from reminding us what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means for the way we live and the way that we behave. The Bible is not ashamed of getting us to see just how much of a sacrifice it is to follow Jesus in the world. Be warned, Corinthians, says Paul, and learn from the Israelites' example. And so the same warning is applied to us today. Because don't we also have the exact same privileges as Christians? Be warned, Chalmers, for those of us who think we are safe, For us ministers and elders and gospel workers and rank-and-file members of the church, if we are deliberately worshipping something else other than God, 
if we are seeing someone else on the side, if we are participating in idol worship as the Israelites did, as the Corinthians were tempted to, if we are deliberately not challenging sin and idolatry and adultery in any part of our lives, if we are grumbling against a good God and seeking for another leader in our lives so as not to have to make any sacrifices at work or at home or in the world, and if we are doing all of this thinking that we can get away with it, thinking that we are safe, standing on our baptism, on our communion with the Lord, then we need to heed this warning. For God will not be mocked, and he will not be shared with anyone, for he is a righteous and a jealous God. This is a hard but necessary part of the Bible to sit in. Paul himself says of himself, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. No one is safe. But as we sit in this, it is also necessary to say that we need to understand who Paul is not talking directly to here. He's not talking to the Christian who is worried that he's going to let God down, or he is letting God down. He's not talking to the Christian who feels the weight of every failed opportunity and knows the worst version of themselves as they battle with sin and fail and get up and repent and battles again. It's not to the Christian who feels the remorse of action or inaction or the distance that that brings. It's not to the Christian who feels the desire to get back with God or the Christian who feels that they've sinned once too many times to be good enough to God. They need to hear the encouragements in this passage. It's not to the Christian who prays for thorns to be removed and they just don't seem to be. It's not to the Christian who is on their knees or who is desperate to get on their knees in repentance full of remorse under the understanding that God does require a repentant heart and a devoted mind and a clean spirit. As we were looking at not so long ago in Isaiah, a promise that Jesus himself repeats in Matthew 12, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Paul is not talking to or about that kind of Christian. He's talking about and to the knowingly over-self-confident, standing-on-principled knowledge person who uses their knowledge of the Bible and their knowledge of who they think God to be and who stand on their baptism and communion with the Lord to allow them to buttress up their lives of living in deliberate idolatry and adultery with the living God of eternity, assuming that they'll be saved. And as I say that, we don't duck out of what is being said here. We ask this question of all of us. You are not free to provoke the Lord to jealousy. So where do the Corinthians go? Where do we go from here? Well, before we finally look at what participating in idol worship may look like for us today in our culture, this is where verse 13 is so helpful for us, and it is worth spending a little bit of time in it this morning. For within the warning from history and the example that Paul gives for our instruction, so there is grace. And not only does it come in the form of us being warned, that is an act of grace in itself, but Paul gives us an encouragement for our progress, and that is found in verse 13. For the, the thing that may be ringing in our ears is, well, all of this seems truly impossible. Again, imagine what the Corinthians would be saying to this. How on earth am I meant to withstand that kind of pressure from culture? 
where the way culture physically functions is effectively one act of idol worship. How on earth do I even exist in that kind of culture? That's ridiculous. How can I exist as a Christian and not fail every single time? Well, this is where verse 13 acts like a splash of glorious cold water in what is a very hot part of the Bible. No temptation, says Paul, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How does this help? In some senses, it may seem to make matters worse. But I do fail, we cry, every day. It's, it's worse to think that I really should have beaten temptation every single time, isn't it? That I really should not have given in to adultery or idolatry at any moment in my life. But can you see, the point is here, not that we fail... The Bible is is full of recognition that we are imperfect and that we fail. In fact, 1 John says that if we pretend that we don't sin, we call ourselves to be a liar and God to be a liar. We know that we live and stand only in the death and resurrection of Christ as our defense, not on our works. What this verse allows us to see is that we really can truly live in culture and it not be impossible. Can you see the difference between the way the Corinthians and the Israelites are treating God? And, and how God treats them, how he treats us. We treat him with deep unfaithfulness, he treats us with deep faithfulness. They test him, but he doesn't put us to the test. He's with us. He is helping us every single moment. He provides at every point in our lives opportunities to say no or to say yes. And even when we get it wrong, he doesn't abandon us. He is faithful. Can you see? You can do this, cries verse 13. You're not on your own. It's not inevitable that you will fail. It just isn't. Because unlike you, Israelites, Corinthians, charmers, God is not unfaithful. He will always provide a way to help. God is not there to catch us out. He is there to bring us through to the very end, intact. Praise God. What an astonishing encouragement in the midst of all this warning. God is faithful, and he has provided a way. You are not on your own. He is faithful, and that's exactly what we need to hear in all of this. And it is Christ's faithfulness that Paul points us to as we come in on the home straight. For there is still one thing that is hanging over our minds, isn't there, as we come in uh, to land... And and, and that is the argument that we started with right at the beginning of this sermon and this series with, all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 8. For surely it still stands that an idol really is nothing and God is everything. So what on earth is going on? Why is God so jealous and why are the repercussions so severe if that's true? Well, this is where Paul plays his final card. Um, He reveals that in fact an idol never exists in isolation. As we've seen from the example of the Old Testament, something compels people to do extraordinary things in front of a metal object. And that something, says Paul, is the spiritual reality that exists behind the idol. That is of the the spiritual realm of demons, he says here. And this is a serious business, this isn't a joke. 
those spiritual beings that are less than Christ, lower than angels, but nonetheless real spiritual forces that Christ has allowed to to be free in the earth. And this is where participation is so important, and the language of participation. This is the principle of the whole passage. It is not the knowing that idols are nothing. We all know that. It is rather the active participation in the worship of and the fellowshipping with the spiritual reality behind the idol. In other words, this isn't talking about us just passing by or having to come up against idols in culture. We all have to come up against idols in culture. We all come up against materialism and and money. We all have to pay for things. We all come up against sexual immorality. We know what that looks like. We all have to, to buy houses and go to secular meetings. We all brush up against those things. We exist in those cultural norms. It is the participating with them that Paul is really warning us against. And to ram this home and to help with how we apply this passage to ourselves, Paul paints for us a picture of what true participation looks like so we know what it looks like. And he does so by using the beautiful act of the Lord's Supper. The picture of true participation. Read with me as we come to a close, verses 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, that that, that still stands, says Paul. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, can you see what Paul is doing here? As a Christian, says Paul, you are actively involved in deep participation with Christ himself. And that happens namely when you come together to eat of the Lord's table. And if that is the case, you just cannot also eat and drink and participate with demons. Christianity and idolatry just doesn't mix. You cannot be married to one person and be sleeping with another. You cannot. But by highlighting the Lord's Supper here, Paul doesn't just make a cold argument. He also shows how beautiful it is to be participants with Christ. He wants to remind us how wonderful it is to know Jesus. What a deep privilege it is to be that intimate with Jesus, to literally be eating with him regularly. Look at these questions. When you drink and eat, is it not participation in the blood and body of Christ himself? Yes, says Paul. That means are you not party to the benefits of the death and resurrection and eternal life of Christ for you? Yes, says Paul. It's a beautiful thing. And it is a beautiful thing because here, more than in any other passage in the whole of the Bible, we get a really good look at what communion really is. 
It's not just a remembrance of what Christ has done, as much as it is that. It is also a participation with Christ himself. We are united with him spiritually. In his blood and in his body, verse 16, as we are also united with each other spiritually, where we become one person, verse 17. The whole process of taking communion is a reunification with us as sinners through repentance because of Christ's blood to Christ himself. And for us as enemies with each other to be brought into right relationship with each other, united as if we were one body. Eating at Christ's table is a deeply intimate and involved privilege beyond our wildest dreams. And it is beautiful beyond our reckoning. It is also the place where we as tempted idolaters come and ask for his forgiveness. That's the real beauty of the Lord's Supper. That's what being united in Christ's blood means. I can approach him and ask for repentance and repent and ask for forgiveness. His death has a bearing on me as I am brought to my knees and repent to him and in him. That's why we take communion. We need the Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful thing. As I eat this bread and drink this cup, I do so with Jesus himself. And so it cannot be that you wish to be united, you wish to eat at the table of and be in fellowship with other spiritual beings. For if partaking in the Lord's Supper means I become united with Christ and united with other Christians, partaking in and participating with ceremonies of other idols means I am united with the demon behind that idol and I am united with the other idolaters around me. Can you see? It's the same thing. You cannot do both. And that's where we come to the crunch of what this looks like today. For as we look on the deep seriousness of what participation really means, we need to know what this looks like as we interface with idols in our world today. And on that, it is firstly important to say that the exact Corinthian issue applies to us now. Consider a Christian man um, saved out of Hinduism and this is one of the examples, I think, in your studies over the next few weeks. He's invited to his sister's Hindu wedding. What does he do? Does he go? It may well be that not going is going to ostracize him from his family for life. He no longer has gospel opportunities. Not going isn't an option. Well, participation is the test. In other words, what does he do that shows he is actively not involved in what is going on at all on any spiritual level? He's merely present. Uh, I don't know enough about religious practices in other religions. But in these scenarios, anything that would involve, I'm guessing, sprinkling a statue, sacrificing anything, offering something to a religious person in front of people, genuflecting to a statue as you go into a place of worship, stating prayers as part of the ceremony, having to give a speech or elevated speech of any kind, that, I think, could be participation. You do not do it for fear of provoking the Lord God to jealousy. You need to stand out. Maybe you're a councillor, for example, for the local city council, and as sometimes happens, your council meetings are held across the city in different public buildings, and you end up in a mosque, say, and as a part of the meeting, um, it is um, being involved in a multi-faith service. You're, you're free to enter a mosque, remembering, of course, that you're a weaker brother and a non-Christian watching on, and if it causes issues there, you might not want to go in for those reasons. But if your conscience is clear with those people, then your final test is participation. 
That means you don't involve yourself in religious ceremony of any kind. Whether it's washing a part of your body or falling prostrate on your knees with everyone else. People might ask you to stand for prayers or for a piece of elevated speech. Those things, I think, would be seen as participation. And you would be provoking the Lord to jealousy. But what about British secular idols? These are a bit harder. What might participation look like there? A lot of this will be covered next week with Rog, but just to get us thinking, let's take materialism. If I am beginning to buy things that I know I don't need with money that I don't have, that is making me fall into debt just to keep up with the Joneses to show off status, then I'm, I think I'm participating with the God of materialism. That's where my heart is. Having money or spending, it's absolutely fine. We need to. But, but does it become what I worship? What about sex and relationships? Am I tempted to, and am I actively seeking a way out of my situation? If I'm married, am I looking elsewhere? Do I have someone on the side? Am I, if I'm single, am I, am I tempted to, to go to any lengths to be married at the cost of being obedient to Jesus? Well, what about being involved in secular workplace groups? And I, the reason I use this example is, is a lot of you over the past month have emailed this into me, such as LGBT training and awareness meetings and groups. I am free to be in those places, and often I need to be, and that's absolutely right. But as soon as I'm in a situation where I cannot say that I disagree with the fundamental nature of same-sex relationships or of marriage as in the Bible, well, then I may be more than just an onlooker then I may be participating and agreeing with an idol of the age. I might be provoking the Lord to jealousy. In short, in any situation or area of my life where I cannot remain distinctive and show that I am not participating with everyone else in something that is idolatrous and adulterous, then I need to be thinking, am I provoking the Lord to jealousy? What do I need to do? There will be so many other examples that come up over the course of your discussions in your small groups. And as you have those discussions, remember the principle. What does participation look like in any given scenario? And what does distancing myself correctly in those situations that I might need to be in, what do they look like so that I'm not provoking the Lord to jealousy? Well, where do we close? Well, we close here and now. I've spoken far too long. But we do so heeding the warning and taking the encouragement. And so I ask myself the question, as Paul asks himself the question, as much as I ask all of us this question. What is there in my life that I need to address that may well be provoking the Lord to jealousy? Is there something going on in my life that I have to deal with right now and put right before the Lord? because it has not gone unnoticed by a living, righteous, loving, and jealous God. But within that is the encouragement found in verse 13. We can do this. Sin is not inevitable. Christ is faithful, and he will provide us with opportunities to be able to live distinctive lives in terrifically difficult situations every day. He will never leave us on our own. He is supremely faithful, he never gives up on us and our wrestling and battling with sin. And because that is true, finally, the encouragement also comes in the form of the Lord's Supper itself, the remembrance of what Jesus has done. 
The Lord's Supper here isn't just used by Paul as an example. It shows us how it is we as idolaters can be forgiven. If there is something in your life that you have been hiding or knowing is wrong and you haven't dealt with, if you have been assuming that it's okay to continue living like that, standing on past performance and on your knowledge and baptism and past ceremony, then the death of Jesus and the time that is given to you now allows you to come to him now and repent and throw yourself on the loving mercy of God who loved you so much, who was so jealous for you, that he sent his son so that he could bleed for you and died for you. So that we, all of us, little factories of idols that we are, can be made one with him and one with each other and brought into full participation with the real and only God of eternity. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we um, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is good and true and right for us. Every part of it, the whole counsel of God. Father God, we are sobered by what we read here today, but we are so very thankful that you give us this warning. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us here. May we not stand on principle or on ceremony or on our baptism just in order to get away with sin in our lives. Father God, please, please, may you convict all of us here. May we put things right that we need to, and may we come to you in full repentance. Thank you, Heavenly Father, so much that you never leave us without opportunities to do the right thing. Thank you that you are faithful to us every day. Thank you that you help us every day. Thank you that we can do this. We can live the Christian life in our our idolatrous culture. Help us to help each other in that, we pray. But above all, Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his blood, his death, his resurrection. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that he died so that we might be forgiven and every day come to him in repentance and, and, and sup with him, eat with him and drink with him in participation with him because of what he has done for us. Father, help us to stand on his blood and his death and on his grace, we pray this morning. May we go away from here wanting to live more like Jesus and to be more in love with him. We pray all these things with great thanksgiving and with great joy in your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.